safe space, a live forum for courageous conversations about difficult subjects. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about telling difficult stories. And my guest tonight, Professor Lawrence L. Langer, is going to be talking with me about talking about the Holocaust. Professor Lawrence L. Langer is, a, is Professor Emeritus of English from Simmons College in Boston. He is a foremost scholar of the Holocaust in the field of literature and testimony. He's the author of seven books about the Holocaust, examining the literature of the Holocaust, the art of the Holocaust, and for our purposes tonight, the oral testimony of survivors of the Holocaust. Professor Langer's book, Holocaust Testimonies, The Ruins of Memory, explores the impact of the Holocaust on survivors' sense of self, their experience of memory, their understanding of morality, and the sense of the continuity of life itself. Professor Langer is perhaps best known for his clear refusal to read into the Holocaust any redemptive message about the triumph of the human spirit. He is unflinching in his call to us as readers and listeners to face the full atrocity of the brutality and murder that was the Holocaust. Welcome to Safe Space, Professor Langer. I'm happy to be here. I understand that the Holocaust did not uh, affect your family personally, but I would love to hear about how you decided to really make it the focus of your life's work. By accident. I didn't really make the decision. Uh, three particular episodes uh, turned me toward the Holocaust. In 1963, I was driving from Salzburg to Vienna to spend a year, uh, a Fulbright year, teaching at an Austrian university with my wife and small children. And on the autobahn, I saw a sign saying to Mauthausen. At the time, I really was not that interested in the Holocaust, but I said to my wife, I think that was a German concentration camp. So we took a detour and we drove up to the camp, parked in the parking space. We were the only car there. The camp was totally deserted except for the caretaker and his wife. At that time, there was no museum. So we went into the camp and went into a huge build, a cavernous building, um, and it was obviously a form of barracks, but it was empty. There was nothing there, not even any bunks. And in a corner of that room, there was a staircase. So I went down the staircase, and there was a little room, a stone room, with a sign on it saying, form a gas chamber. It was a very small room not nearly as large as the gas chambers of the famous death camps. But I walked into that room, and I sat down on the floor and closed my eyes and tried to conjure up what it must have been like to be in a gas chamber before you died. And after a few minutes in which nothing at all happened, I decided that I was being foolishly presu uh, presumptuous. But I said to myself, there's the historical moment on one side, and there's me trying to understand it on the other, and with no success whatsoever. I said, how will anyone ever understand this? Uh, later in the year, a colleague of mine from Vienna called me and said, how would you like to visit Auschwitz? I had a car, so we drove through Czechoslovakia into Poland, visited the camp. And we went into the camp, and one of the first things I saw was, again, this cavernous space behind a glass wall, and it contained tons and tons of women's hair. And I looked at it, and I said to myself, that hair represents the murder of 
hundreds of thousands of women. And again, I couldn't make a connection between the two. Third episode, after we left Austria, when we're driving to France to pick up the ship to go home, we stopped at a museum in Munich. And I walked up the marble stairs to the top, and there was a very large painting from the 18th century of a rural landscape, a farmer and his wife, some cows, a barn. And the title of the painting was Dachau. Now, as you may know, Dachau was a concentration camp in Germany, but long before that, Dachau was and still is a village outside of Munich. And that was a moment of insight for me, because I asked myself, how would you write a poem today called Dachau that referred not to a rural village, but to the concentration camp? So I went back to my college and started teaching a seminar called The Literature of Atrocity, which was the first course at a college in Holocaust literature in the country back in 1964 or 5. And what I discovered was that literature through the power of the imagination enabled us not to know what it was like, but to imagine what it was like. And from that point on, I said, this is what I'm going to do, develop a language for writing about this event so that readers will be able to at least imagine what happened, even if they will never know what it was like. So what part of what I'm hearing is that from your own experience of being unable to imagine it, you wanted to help other people be able to imagine it. Precisely. Uh, well, I can tell from reading your book that you achieved that, but we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that further. So I want to ask you, you know, the, the book Holocaust Testimonies uh, describes vignettes from the testimony of many survivors of the Holocaust, from the oral testimony that you witnessed or listened to or even interviewed for yourself. And one of the themes that keeps emerging in these testimonies is the difficulty of, of even beginning to communicate what this was like. Again, ex exactly your issue of how difficult it is for someone who wasn't there to imagine it. But I'm curious, for you, immersing yourself in the literature of atrocity, in these, in these stories of atrocity, what was the impact? What is the, the impact on you personally over time? Did you find yourself at times shutting down to it, not being able to keep hearing? You know, how has it impacted you? Well, you know, it's a wonderful question, and I wish I had a complete answer to it, but I don't. I have several colleagues who are also in this field, and after a time they had to give it up for the reasons that you mentioned. They just couldn't manage what they were hearing. Uh, maybe I'm thick-skinned, but I think it's more than that, you know. It was from, from a sense of obligation to find a way of conveying their stories, I felt that someone had to listen to what they had to tell, because otherwise their stories would be forgotten, they would be unknown, and their experience would be ceded to oblivion. And that was unacceptable to me. So I was able to steel myself. Uh, I'm not a depressive type, and the stories did not depress me. They certainly pained me, because I have heard tales from them, some of which I can't repeat. I won't repeat to anyone. But I was able to listen and listen and listen patiently and to ask some questions. They needed someone to listen sympathetically and empathetically to them, and that's the role I took on for myself. And out of that grew the book, Holocaust Testimonies, The Ruins of Memory. 
I'd love to ask you for a story that you feel you can repeat that did really particularly touch you. Well, I could tell you one or two. I was interviewing a man who at the time was a teenager. Uh, he was 14. He and his father were sent to Majdanek, which was one of the death camps. And he shared a bunk with his father. And he told me one night his father said to him, I am so hungry, you have to get me something to eat. I don't think I can manage without some food. And the man, who had been the boy, but now was an adult, because he survived, said to me, where was I supposed to get food for my father in the middle of the night in a camp called Majdanek? He says, I couldn't. He said, when I woke up in the morning, I touched my father, and he was cold. He was dead. And then he mouthed to me. He didn't say to me, but he mouthed to me the words, I can't speak. I've lost my voice. And he literally went mute. Literally. I had to have the cameras turned off. Um, and we took a walk down the corridor. And uh, it's amusing. He apologized to me. He apologized to me. He was embarrassed. He said, nothing like this ever happened to me before. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, what were you talking about when you suddenly went mute? And he said, I was talking about how my father died. I said, well, you were speaking about the unspeakable, and it had a literal effect on you. You lost your voice. It was really a very frightening moment for him and for me. But we managed together. One other story I can tell you, a woman who was telling about her experience for several hours. At the very end, she said, I want to tell you one last story. Um, her husband had been previously married. His wife and two young children had been killed. Came to America after the war, met her, they married, and they had two more children of their own. And the last thing she says, one of the most painful things I have to talk about is my children, my current children, who say to me sometimes, Mommy, I think Daddy doesn't know who we are. And I said, what do they mean? She said, how many times did my husband call my son Leo, Simon, and call my daughter Lenore, Emily, because those were the names of his dead children? And he confused the two. And I listened to that, and I said, um, imagine the anguish in that family, that man who had dead family and a living family and has to confront both. I was doing the interview with a co-interviewer, of course. We have two, we, we do the interviews with two interviewers, and the other interviewer started crying, and the survivor leaned forward and said, you're crying, and she put her arms around her and consoled her. Can you imagine? Mm. Um, because she couldn't manage to listen to that story without weeping. And those are two small examples, and I could give you dozens and dozens more. It's so pointy that it feels like almost silence is the only right answer, only right way to respond to each story. Could you talk just a little louder, please? <clears throat> I was saying it feels like silence is almost the only appropriate response. The stories are so moving. In the beginning, I believed that. And years ago, Elie Bissell said exactly that. He said, if you weren't there, you can't know. And the only proper response to what happened in the Holocaust is silence. Uh, but when I thought about it, I said, well, if we're all silent, as I said before, no one will know what happened. No, no, right. Right, it's just I think it was my instinct how to honor 
you know, how to honor the power of what you just said and feeling like words would fail me to, to respond in any appropriate way. Um, but yes, I don't want, I don't want the person speaking it to feel received by silence. Um, yeah, I mean, part of what strikes me with the two stories that you shared is that in both cases, the, the survivor, the person bearing witness, was taking care of the listener. In the first case, he was apologizing to you for his inability to speak. In the second case, she's consoling the interviewer. And I was struck, how much do you think it's hard to talk about the Holocaust because of the fear of hurting the listener with the, the anguish of the story? That it's a second crucial question and, and an accurate one because sometimes after the interview is over we sit around we talk some more and I say why didn't you do me that during the interview and sometimes they'll say we didn't want to upset you for example I said to one man you know what was the worst thing that ever happened to you he said when my husband, when my brother died in my arms, he died of malnutrition in my arms. And I said, but that's very important. You didn't tell me that during the interview when they were filming. He said, well, I thought it might upset you. It, it's very strange, you know, mm -hmm. that, that they have this kind of uh, uh, concern, not only for themselves and their story and their anguish, but for the impact they have on you. And it's, it's, it's really not easy to be a good interviewer. Because you, have to, you have to suppress your own agenda, and you have to be able to listen to anything they have to say. And if you were to ask me what's the most important thing you learned from doing these interviews, and I spent four years watching interviews or doing them myself, is never judge what you were hearing from the survivor. Mm because no matter how difficult what they're telling you is and how, how you may feel you need to judge something that they did that they shouldn't have done, you have to ask yourself, now what would you do in that situation? And the answer is, I have no idea. You have to be in that situation. And so you have to be able to listen without judging anything without blaming without saying how come you didn't do something how come you didn't resist those questions are often asked by people and they're asked out of ignorance of the situation this is WMPG my name is Dr. Anne this is safe space and I'm talking to Professor L. Langer about the Holocaust and oral testimony from survivors so what strikes me I know you've written a great deal about this idea of choiceless choice in understanding the non-choices that people faced. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. Well, the more I listened, the more I realized that some of that traditional language categories and moral categories simply don't apply to uh, the situation. I remember one woman who was in the Kovno ghetto and she was a nurse in the ghetto hospital. And um, her husband was very ill with typhus. And one day, her sister-in-law came to her and said that her husband was also ill. Um, you have to get him some medicine. And she said, all I had was a little medicine, and I was using it on my 
um, for my husband. She says, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't give you anything. And her brother died. She said, what was I supposed to do? And when I listened to that story, I said to myself, well, she didn't really. She made a choice, of course. It goes to my husband and not to your husband. But that's not choice in the sense that we understand making a distinction between good actions and bad actions or good actions and evil actions. What she was doing was making a choice between something that was bad and something that was worse. And that's what I meant by choiceless choice. We use the word choice, but it's not choice in the familiar sense of a moral decision. This decision had nothing to do with morality. It had to do with keeping someone alive. And often it had to do with keeping yourself alive. People often stole bread from other prisoners. You and I might say, what a terrible thing to do. But when you're starving to death, you don't think about, that doesn't belong to me, it belongs to someone else. And uh, that's when I developed the notion of choiceless choice as a way of explaining or at least writing and talking about situations which simply don't fit into the kind of life you and I live in normal time. Part of what I was struck by in your writing is the way in which you talk about this issue of judgment and and how decisions made to survive in that context really have to be viewed in a different light. And I was curious, do you, was it your observation that part of the suffering of the survivors, now many decades post-Holocaust, was a kind of internal judgment? Of, of themselves? Yes. They do judge themselves, although they should not judge themselves. Uh, some of them declare themselves guilty and when I try to say what you're talking about is remorse because you weren't able to do anything, they say, no, I should have done something. And for a long time I said, they don't understand their own situation. And then I realized that's not the way to approach it. In fact, their feeling of guilt is an expression of a kind of moral dignity which says to them, even though I didn't do something, I should have been able to do something. In other words, taking their sense of morality today and pushing it back into that time and creating a situation where good and bad should have remained a valid distinction. The oddest thing is in this dialogue with themselves, they so often omit the real criminals, the Germans, and their allies and collaborators, who are the guilty ones. And they transfer to themselves the guilt that belongs in someone else. And it's very painful for me to hear that because I know they are not guilty. I know they were in a situation of what I call choiceless choice where no matter what they did, it wouldn't help. It, it, I can understand why it's so painful for you to hear that because it's like you've suffered so much. Don't keep... It's, there's almost like this way that the suffering keeps living on in that self-judgment. Well, what keeps living on is the dying. You know, I recently developed the notion of what I call the after-death of the Holocaust. So many of them talk about having... This, I'll give you a concrete example. A woman survivor of Auschwitz came back to Paris after the war, got married, had a baby, was in the hospital, had just given birth, and a friend of hers who had been in Auschwitz with her comes to visit her. 
and she finds her weeping, and she says, what are you weeping for? She says, you just had a little boy. She says, but I can't forget all those children in Auschwitz who died. And then she pauses and she says, you know, I died in Auschwitz, but no one sees it. And I said to myself when I read that, because that's a contradiction. If you died in Auschwitz, you're no longer alive, and she's still alive. And I said, that's a new concept. At first, I called it death life. I made one word out of it. I said, that's too clumsy. I now call it the after death of the Holocaust. People survive something. We have no word in, language, in, in English or any language of having died through something. We live through something, but the Holocaust survivor has also died through something. And it's very hard to communicate that. Um, they have behind them this memory of, you know, one person, one man said 36 members of his immediate family were killed, and he's the only one who's left. So he has this cloud of past dying hanging over him all through his life. That doesn't mean he doesn't get on with his life, because he does, and they do. But death gets on with them as they get on with life. It's a phenomenon that's very difficult to understand, but... So many people use that expression. One woman in her diary that she kept in Berg and Belton when they were liberated says, we have survived, pause, but we are dead. And she is not deliberately introducing a paradox. She's saying something which she's experiencing and which she's feeling. It's one of the hardest things for non-survivors to grasp. And yet, actually, intuitively, it does make sense to feel like you really some. It's almost like your soul died in some way. Like my, I'm, I'm, I appear to be alive, but something crucial about me died back then. That's right. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you. You know, when you say it's so hard for people to understand that, um, I'm curious about what your sense of the limits of empathy are. You know, you taught this first class about the literature of the Holocaust to try to help people imagine it. You said before they can't know it, but at least they can imagine it. What is your sense now, so many years later, about how possible it is for someone like me or for you to really get it? Uh, is it do you th how far can empathy and imagination take us? There's no limit to how far you can go, but you have to work at it. <clears throat> you know, I've been working at it, well, since 1964, so that's four, 30, 47 years. And I still don't get it all. I'll give you one example of what I don't get, which I'll never get. World War One, World War Two ended on May fifth, nineteen forty-five, um, or May eighth. May fifth, American troops liberated the Mauthausen death camp. May fifth, April twenty-ninth, six days before, the Germans were still gassing Soviet prisoners of war in the small gas chamber in Mauthausen. I mean, and April 29th means Hitler would commit suicide the next day and the war would end in a week. The war was clearly lost. And I say to myself, why would anyone go on gassing prisoners when it's in their own interest to save prisoners so that when the Allied troops arrive, they say, look at all the prisoners we saved. I have no answer to that question. I don't understand it. So, part of, so part of what I'm hearing you say is that you have worked so hard to have empathy to get the experience of being a survivor. But, but where empathy is at this point still blocked is around empathy for the, for the SS guards, for how to understand their actions. Well, 
if you mean by empathy trying to understand the behavior, you don't mean sympathy. I don't. No, I, I have don't. no sympathy. <laughs> but uh, trying to understand them, uh, it's very difficult. And also trying to understand how so many survivors endured what they survived. Uh, for periods of time, the Germans fed them on 300 calories a day. Now, you can't live for more than three or four months on 300 calories a day. Uh, how did you get through every day and wake up in the morning hungry and go through all day hungry and go to bed hungry knowing you'd wake up in the morning hungry? Um, and uh, uh, you have to try as best you can to identify with people who endured that and sympathize with people who endured that yes. and understand that, there. well, as you said, there's a limit. There's a limit to empathy in the sense that there's always going to be this slight gulf between our ability to imagine what it was like and how it really was. And all we can do is approach, narrow the limits as much as you can, and that's what I try to do in my writing, narrow the limits. And what have you discovered? Because, you know, in my work as a psychiatrist, I'm very interested in this question, too, about how to increase people's capacity to, to bear the horror of what has happened to them. And I'd love to hear from your experience, what does help people be able to imagine that, to, to increase their capacity for empathy? It's almost like what helped the interviewers be really good interviewers? Well, the first thing which is absolutely essential is to know something about the history of the Holocaust. And that's what ruins a lot of interviews. And I've watched interviews done by other people and I see the expression on the face of the survivor gradually change as they realize this person doesn't know what I'm talking about. Mm. I'll interview, the, the survivor will say, well, when I was in Sobibor, and the interviewer will say, Sobibor, what was that? Now, you should never have to ask that question. You should know what that was before. So the first thing that helps you with empathy is understanding what happened. And... The great tragedy today is that the majority of Americans have no clue to the details of the Holocaust. And it's getting worse and worse. Now, you can hardly blame people. Hitler came to power 78, 77 years ago, 78 years ago. That's a long time ago. Uh, I mean, that's three quarters of a century. And so you can't say to people, especially the young people, you have to know all of this. But the less of this, the less you know the less you can empathize with the situation. Right. You remain ignorant. I mean, I find, I'm, for me, the Holocaust is one of the most important events in the history of mankind. And as educated human beings, we're obliged to be familiar with the most important events in the history of mankind. But I also understand why people turn away from it, because it's not just painful, it's horrifying. I mean, the kinds of things that were done, burning people alive, burying people alive, average person doesn't want to read about that, prefers not to hear about it. That's Very right. hard to confront. I'm going to have to close in a minute, Professor Langer. I want to ask you one last question, okay. which is about um, the difference between telling stories of the Holocaust in writing and in the spoken word. And you you write a fair amount about that, but I'd love to hear you kind of summarize what the differences are, and maybe maybe especially from the point of view of the teller of the survivor, 
is there something that is helpful about telling it? Is there something that's even more helpful about writing it? Or how do people report that difference? Well, it's a controversial subject. Not everyone agrees with me on that. But I have interviewed a number of people who have told their story and have also written books about it. And what I found is that as soon as you begin to write a book, you think about how am I going to tell this story in advance. Book has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to have a specific narrative flow. It can't digress, digress every other page. And in doing that, you give a shape and form to your story, and it makes it appear that it has more of a logic to it than it really had. When you listen to the narrative from a survivor, they're spontaneous. They can interrupt themselves. They can say, oh, I forgot this. They say, let me jump ahead you know, six months. And there's no problem with that. If you wrote that in the text, very hard to follow that. Reader would have immense difficulty doing that. So you get two different stories. Uh, I interviewed one woman who brought her book in, said, let me read from my book. I said, I'd rather hear you. She says, no, let me read it. And she, reads, she reads about her arrival in Auschwitz. It's full of um, uh, attractive rhetoric, but it's full of rhetoric, many adjectives, exaggerations. And she makes a face, and she closes the book, puts it down, she says, let me start from the beginning again. And then she just tells her story. And the difference is dramatic. There are two different ways of communication. On that note, Professor Langer, um, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I felt really moved by so many of the stories well, you told. my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Dr. Ann on Safe Space. I've been talking to Professor Lawrence L. Langer about his work with survivors of the Holocaust. He's the author of Holocaust Testimonies, The Ruins of Memory. I want to thank tonight Eric Poulin for mixing the sound.